Now it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today's event. We are very pleased to welcome Igor Volsky to Harrisburg. His new book is titled Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. He is the co-founder and executive director of Guns Down America, an organization dedicated to building a future with fewer guns. He has appeared on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, CNBC Television, and many, many radio shows. He lives in Washington, D.C. In his new book, Guns Down, Volsky offers a radical argument for the gun control movement our country desperately needs. Um, it has received high praise. Donna Brazil says of Guns Down, Volsky presents a smart, thoughtful, common sense plan to reduce gun violence by the simple expedient of reducing guns available for criminals. And Alyssa Milano writes that anyone who wants to help build safe American communities must read this book. Thank you to Igor and his team for reaching out and joining us in Harrisburg this evening. So please join me in giving him a warm Harrisburg welcome. I'll get it. Ah, there we go. Sorry about that. The tape came off. Hi, everybody. Good evening. So good to be here. And uh, by the way, when they say scholar, they really mean scholar because I've been downstairs looking at some amazing books. This may be the greatest bookstore I've ever been in, and I'm now so jealous of all of you that you live here and get to come here all the time. Uh, and, and thank you so much for, for having me here. It's really my, kind of my first time in Pennsylvania. I've driven through, but I've never really stopped and taken it all in. Uh, and I'm, I'm so happy to, to do it with all of you. Uh, so we've been on a 20-state on a tour uh, to, support, uh, to support the book and to support the, the work of Guns Down America. And I've been uh, very popular at Unitarian churches. Uh, and uh, uh, when I speak at the, yes, see, there you go. Coming to your church soon, I'm sure. Uh, and when I speak uh, at those churches, I say it's so good to be here uh, at, a, at a house of worship because I feel uh, part of the reason why I, I do this work, why I work on this issue, why I work on politics, is because I'm Jewish. Uh, and the reason I say that uh, is because I was born in the Soviet Union in the mid-1980s. Uh, and back then, as I think is really the case now, it was very difficult to be Jewish in the Soviet Union. You had uh, limited job opportunities, you had limited education opportunities, you faced discrimination every step of the way. Uh, in fact, I remember when I was four or five years old, I went to my father's house and he had a stand-up piano. And because I've always wanted to, do, to be a music star, I was banging on that piano and the piano fell over on me. It didn't work out, the music career after that. Uh, and I was laying there in the, in the hospital room in the ward for children, people, ch people, children who were four, five, six years old. And at the time, my last name wasn't Volsky. It was Katzman, or Katzman, as you would say it in Russian, a very Jewish last name. And when the other kids in the ward learned that my last name was Jewish, they started making fun of me. And it was really my, my first experience with anti-Semitism, my first experience with hatred, and I came home and I told my mom, and she said, well, you don't look particularly Jewish. Maybe we can change our last name, because at the time we didn't know we were going to be leaving the Soviet Union. And there was an earthquake that happened in the country of Georgia. And the person who was doing such a great job with the response, his last name was Volsky. And so we became the Volsky. So hello again, I'm Igor Volsky. Uh, but, you know, I, I think what really got me into this work and what motivated me to do the book is that disparity between what life is actually like for people and how politicians talk about it. Because you could imagine the Soviet leaders were telling us everything is great, everything is wonderful, we're all equal. And the truth for many Jewish people, for many people, uh, in Russia was, was quite different. That disparity between what politicians say and what they actually do. 
I started my career working at the Center for American Progress, a large think tank in Washington, D.C., on a whole host of different issues. Uh, I worked on healthcare for a long time and always avoided guns because it's such a hard issue. And the incentives on that issue are just so, so difficult because you become most relevant when there's some kind of mass shooting, when there's some kind of awful tragedy. And I stayed away for a very long time until December 2nd, 2015. That was the day of the 366th mass shooting in the United States that year, the San Bernardino shooting in California. I had heard about it the day before and came back to my computer at the end of the day and saw these lawmakers sending their thoughts and prayers over and over and over again. Yeah, you, you, you laugh because you've seen them do it, right? They do it every time there's a shooting. But what caught my eye that evening is that the lawmakers who were most vocal about sending their thoughts and prayers were the same ones who voted against expanding background checks in the aftermath of Newtown. And that gap between what politicians say, pulling the wool over the eyes of their constituents and pretending to care about this issue, and what they do, nothing, revealed itself to me again. And I thought, I'm not gonna let them get away with this. And so I spent the next eight hours tweeting out how much those lawmakers took from the NRA and arguing that the reason why they were only sending their thoughts and prayers and not actually doing anything to reduce gun deaths was because of those dollars. And those tweets became popular, they went viral, they made international headlines, something I never ever anticipated because I thought people had a very clear sense that oftentimes politics, I mean, oftentimes money pollutes our politics, right? That politicians act not in the interest of their constituents, but act in the interest of those dollars. But I guess pairing it with a specific dollar amount, right? Telling people how much that member of Congress took from the NRA really crystallized it for people. And so I got pulled into the movement and I began attending some of the meetings in Washington, D.C. and getting a sense of what the national gun control movement was all about. And when I got there, what I recognized is that there were a lot of great groups who'd been doing this work for a long time, but all of them were really focused on what can we get done in this Congress? What can we get done in the next Congress? And there really wasn't an organized voice that was thinking about what do we want to do, where do we want to be in 15, 20, 30 years? What do we want that future to look like? What should it look like? And if you think about it, that's relatively rare for social movements. The movement for marriage equality, the, probably the last most successful social movement in this country, for years had a wide array of voices. You had organizations, many of them state-based organizations, that were thinking about, can we do civil unions? Can we do domestic partnerships? Could we extend benefits in some way to LGBT people? They were doing the hard work on the ground every single day to improve the lives of those communities. But then you also had voices, like Evan Wolfson's, who I write about in the book, who published a law school essay in the 80s that laid out the long-term goal of marriage equality, that said that eventually the movement should fight for marriage equality. And you could imagine in the 80s, he was laughed out of every room he walked into. He was laughed out every room he walked into in the 90s, in the early 2000s. And then by about 2009, people started to take that idea seriously because things had progressed. The progress that was made by the folks who were working on that incremental change helped change things. Cultural change started occurring. And eventually, we got that long-term goal. But it was that tension between the folks who were doing the important incremental work 
and the ones who were laying out broader movement vision, the long-term goal, that helped move everyone forward. And I thought that in early 2016, we didn't really see that in the gun control movement. And so I formed an organization called Guns Down America to do just that. And for us, the long-term goal became building a future with fewer guns. And the reason for that is fairly simple, because if you look at all of the science on this, where there are more guns, there are more gun deaths of every single kind. There are more gun suicides, there are more gun homicides, there are more accidental shootings, there are more mass shootings, there are more police shootings, both police shooting you and you shooting at police. And so the goal of having fewer guns in a country that has more guns than people, 393 million guns in circulation, seemed like a good one. And we decided to go about that goal in two different ways. One was to drive advocacy campaigns to financially drain the gun industry and the NRA. And the second became building, building political support for bolder, fewer gun policies. Let me talk about the advocacy piece first. Because one of the things that we recognized is that oftentimes it's easier to push corporations to start creating change, to start creating cultural change, than it is to push gerrymandered politicians to do that. Because corporations are driven by different incentives than those politicians. They care about their brand. They care about their customers. They care about their future customers. And it was also one of the ways that the marriage equality movement was able to make progress. Because you'll remember, we saw a whole slew of different companies adopt LGBT inclusive policies for their employees. We saw corporations telling state leaders that no, 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 they're gonna move if they pass restrictive laws. And they began creating cultural change, began creating space for the politics to catch up. And so the first campaign we ran was designed to push FedEx to stop offering discounts to NRA members. This was in December 2016. People were shocked to learn that FedEx was doing this, and eventually they stopped. Our second campaign successfully pushed two large insurers, Chubb and Lockton Affinity, to stop offering discount uh, to to stop underwriting the NRA's murder insurance. Now, I don't know if folks know about murder insurance, but in 2017, the NRA really something they called carry guard. And carry guard was supposed to be a cash cow for the lobby. Because the lobby, like the industry itself, is always trying to figure out new ways to make money. Because they face a very real demographic problem. Their core base of support keeps shrinking and they need to continue selling that base of support, the same old stuff. And so they already have a lot of guns. We know maybe they need insurance. And so in 2017, CarryGuard debuted, and the ads sounded like this. The resistance is real, and they're out to get you. And when they do, not only should you have a gun, but you should also have CarryGuard insurance that helps get the white uh, the red blood out of your white rug gets you a replacement weapon and covers your legal fees. And you could imagine what these commercials looked like. The man protecting the house from the resistance was white. The intruders that were coming in were either black or brown. And we thought, Oh my goodness, these policies are an extension of stand your ground laws, the kind of laws that have spread all over the country, that have devastated communities, that have led to increases in murders and 
in homicides? And how could it be that two large insurance companies, two of the nation's largest, that have all kinds of different lines of business, how could they partner with the NRA on something like this? So we reached out to Color of Change, a great civil rights organization based in New York and DC. And then we called Sabrina Fulton, who's the mother of Trayvon Martin, because nobody could better illustrate the consequences of Stand Your Ground laws than Sabrina. And she filmed a video for us that asked a very simple question. What would the world look like if George Zimmerman had murder insurance? And within weeks of the ad going up, one of the insurers informed the NRA they're no longer extending their contract. And after Parkland, the second insurer said the same. And then New York regulators got wind of what was happening, investigated murder insurance, and decided that it violated their insurance regulations, their financial regulations. And so they fined Chubb and Lockton Affinity millions of dollars. The Attorney General in Washington State did the same thing. And so murder insurance just kind of died. And of course, the barrier to entry for any new insurers to come in and do business with the NRA is so much higher. And Parkland was a turning point for many, many reasons. But it was also a turning point for corporate America. Because corporate America understood in a very clear way that their future, their future customers, were on the other side of this issue. And so immediately after Parkland, you saw 40 companies break ties with the NRA. They stopped offering discounts to NRA members. And you saw two banks, Citibank and Bank of America, announce that they're not going to do business with the manufacturers of assault weapons. They had just discovered that assault weapons were used by killers to kill as many people as possible, as efficiently as possible. And then a few weeks after that, news broke that one of the banks, Bank of America, was bailing Remington, a manufacturer of assault weapons that made the weapon that was used in Sandy Hook, out of bankruptcy. And Bank of America freaked out. They called all of us and they said, this was a deal that was in place before we made our pledge. We're court obligated to see through the restructuring. There's nothing we can do, but we promise we're going to exit it as soon as possible. We're going to give money to Parkland. We're going to do what, whatever you want us to do. Just stop attacking us. And they did. They exited the deal right away, and they gave money to Parkland, and all right, that was, that's good. But then I thought, if such a big American company, a household name, was so nervous about being associated with the gun industry, let's look at the banking industry as a whole. Let's look at the 15 largest public-facing banks in America and see how they stack up. So we hired a research firm in fall of last year, and we asked them to look for three different things when it comes to the 15 largest banks. One, bless you, was uh, to see how much business those banks had done with the industry. Lines of credit, loans. Two, what kind of public policies do they have when it comes to doing business with the gun industry? And three, how much money have those banks given to the top recipients of NRA contributions in Congress? The research came back, and we were able to grade all of the banks on a 100-point scale and give them a letter grade based on how close and how many business ties they had with the industry. And if you go to isyourbankloaded.org, you can see how your bank stacks up and take action right away.
But before we did anything publicly, we wrote a letter to every single bank. And we said to them, look, we know that you are as disgusted by gun violence as we are. But you as a bank have unique leverage to change the behavior of the gun industry. Because that industry made a business decision in the late 80s and early 90s when they were facing the same challenge that the NRA was facing with Carry Guard of how do you continue to convince an ever-shrinking number of people to buy more guns when they already have a lot of guns? What do you do? How do you continue growing? How do you continue making money? It was a real problem for the industry. And that's when they decided that they would just make the guns more deadly. Until 1989, the most popular handgun in America was a revolver. That quickly changed once the gun industry began to pull their military designs and their military language and their advertising into the civilian market. All of a sudden, you started to see assault weapons marketed to civilians, the very same kind of weapons or very similar weapons that are used by our military. You began to see militarized handguns, semi-automatic pistols with larger magazines that use larger rounds that come at you faster, that kill you faster. And so we now have on the streets of America people who are dying from gunshot wounds they would have survived from previous generation of handguns. The industry began to argue that to have a gun is to be a man. Bushmaster had a campaign. Your man card reissued that sold assault weapons to people. And by the way, when you got that assault weapon, it came with a literal man card so that you could prove to your friends that you really are a man after all. The industry did this deliberately. At the same time, companies sprang up that specialized in selling guns to children, specifically between the ages of 6 to 12. That was really the sweet spot. They began producing weapons in all different colors, pink for girls, harvest moon orange for boys, some of these guns, when you order them, come with little beanie babies. So you could play with those too, and you collect different ones as you buy more guns from these companies. This is all done deliberately and openly. And the reason is, is because there is an exemption in federal law that prevents federal oversight of the products the industry produces. So... Cribs, toys, cars are all subject to safety regulation. When you bring a product to market, you have to do all kinds of different testing, all kinds of blind testing. You have to meet all kinds of safety standards. That's not the case with guns. That's because the late John Dingle included a loophole in federal law that specifically prevented that kind of change, that kind of regulation. And by the way, in a sign of how things have changed, his wife, Debbie Dingle, who holds his seat in the same exact congressional district, now has legislation plugging that hole. So this is what we told the, gun in the, this is what we told the banking industry, that you should not be doing business with an irresponsible and deadly industry that is purposely and knowingly manufacturing incredibly dangerous weapons to American civilians. And you shouldn't do that, by the way, because it goes against your stated corporate values. You go on and on about how you want to invest in the communities that you serve, how you want to build safer communities for everybody. This is part of your philanthropic mission, what you tell your shareholders. So live up to those words and do two things, we said. One, announce that you're not going to do business with the gun industry until that industry can be fundamentally reformed. 
And number two, develop a system for flagging suspicious gun purchases using your credit cards and using your debit cards. Because you'll remember, just before the 20th anniversary of Columbine, an 18-year-old woman boarded an airplane in Miami, Florida, flew to Denver, Colorado, got herself to Littleton, Colorado, the site of Columbine High School, went into a federally licensed gun store, bought a long gun using a credit card, a gun, by the way, she could not legally purchase in Florida, and thus the entire purchase was illegal because federal law requires for you to be, bo to be able to purchase that weapon in the state you reside and in the state where you're making the actual purchase. But she was able to do it, no questions asked. Authorities later identified her as a threat to the Columbine community because she had posted on social media that she was trying to recreate what happened in Columbine 20 years ago. And so they shut down dozens of school districts, half a million children were terrified, and she eventually used that long gun to kill herself. At exactly the same time, I was flying from LA to Denver. I get to Hertz rental car, give them my credit card, and it's declined. And I call my credit card company, and they tell me, oh, well, you were just in LA, and now you're in Denver. We just want to make sure it's still you. We want to make sure it's not fraud. And I said, thank you, it's me. Please authorize. I can't rent a car. She was able to illegally buy a gun using a credit card, no questions asked, because there was no system. So that was our second request of the banks. Develop a system that flags suspicious purchases of guns the Aurora shooter, who killed 12 people in a movie theater in 2012 in Colorado, in Aurora, Colorado, used the credit card to buy 5,000 rounds of ammunition. No questions asked. The Vegas killer spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to acquire a small arsenal and to kill dozens of people in October of 2017. We sent the letter to the banks, and some of the banks responded. They were very concerned about their low grade, because in those letters, we also included information about the research we had, and the grade we gave them, and how we gave them that grade. And we said, look, we know this is a snapshot. This is just publicly available data that we were able to gather. Maybe there's something you're doing that we don't know. Tell us, let's talk. And so some of them reached out and we entered into conversations, but most of them stayed silent. And so then we called the New York Times. And we said, hey, <laughs> we wanna run this campaign. What do you think? And it was important for us to go to the business reporter at the New York Times, not the political reporters at the New York Times, because we want to suck out all of the politics from this story and make it a business story and ask the question, why are our financial institutions, many of which were bailed out by our dollars, doing business with such an irresponsible industry? And the reporter called all 15 banks. And many of those banks tried to kill our story. And in what I refer to as the most stressful 72 hours of my life, the story finally ran on April 4th. And all of a sudden, all of these banks are calling me. They're saying they want to talk. They want to offer, one bank told me, <laughs> we want to have you over to really show you the kind of culture we have here and how much we value life. And I say, well, thank you. I look forward to meeting with you. I'm meeting with them soon. And so for us, this is going to be a long-term campaign because we are looking for serious systemic change 
in how our financial institutions do business because none of our hard-earned dollars should go to fund the gun industry. And the gun industry in its current configuration should not be allowed to do business. The other piece that was very important to us is to change the way we talk about guns in America. Because for the last 20 years, we've made a conscious decision to not only meet the other side halfway, but really to meet them like three-fourths of the way, and we still have failed to make progress on the federal level. And you know how this goes, right? When you turn on the TV and you see either a lawmaker or a gun control advocate on television, I love the Second Amendment. I love responsible gun owners. I grew up with guns, all of the guns. Maybe we can do a little background checks. That's how it goes, right? That's what we hear. In the book, I talk about how this idea of the Second Amendment being uh, like oil to water to gun regulation is an entirely new phenomenon invented by the NRA in the 1970s. In fact, what I was uh, surprised to discover is that as recently as 1972, I hope I got that right, you can fact check me later, the NRA would publicly state in their public literature that the Second Amendment is, quote, of limited use when it comes to advancing their agenda of guns everywhere and for everyone. Of limited use. Because the public understanding of the Second Amendment was that it's not an entitlement. That the Second Amendment is a right. And with rights come responsibilities. A well-regulated militia. It's right there in the Second Amendment. And if you look at the whole of our Constitution, where there are rights, there are responsibilities. You have the right to a speedy trial, but you have the responsibility to serve on a jury. You have the right to free speech, but you have the responsibility not to yell fire in a crowded bookstore, not to divulge state secrets, and to respect the free speech rights of others. You have the right to freedom of religion, but you have the responsibility to respect the way other people choose to practice their religion. It goes on and on and on and on and on. Where there's a right, there's a responsibility. But the NRA, over a period of decades, and by spending millions of dollars, have redefined what the Second Amendment really means. And so in this book, I argue that we need to reclaim what patriotic gun ownership actually looks like. And by the way, that's why I was reading the book about American patriotism that I found downstairs to see if it could help me make this argument. <laughs> and I think the first thing we have to do is we have to stop saying we have to take the guns out of the hands of dangerous people. Or, we're just trying to take the guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Because that kind of construct doesn't make any sense in a country where two-thirds of gun deaths are suicides. At all. And it's also a political construct that says, I just want to take the guns out of, those out of the hands of those dangerous people, not you, white gun owner, who I'm trying to convince, but those other dangerous people. I want to disarm them. I think that's pretty disgusting. And it's also not how any other nation, 
that has solved this problem has gone about it. No other nation has divided the world between responsible gun owners and dangerous people. What they've all done is they've raised the standard for how guns are manufactured and for how guns are purchased for everybody. They changed the environment in which guns are produced and in which guns are purchased. And they made everybody safer. And the good news is, we know what they did. <laughs> and we also know that it's worked. You know, we face so many challenges as a country, and we hear our leaders, those running for office, those who are already in office, promise us all kinds of things. We can stop climate change through a Green New Deal, long-term goal. We think we know how to get there, but it's never been done. We don't really know. We're going to try a lot of things. Some of it's going to fail. Some of it's going to work. We're going to adjust, and we're going to move forward. Or we're going to create a single-payer healthcare system. Incredibly hard to do. <laughs> to take America's complicated multi-payer healthcare system and convert it into a single-payer system? Long-term goal? People think they know how to get there? But we don't really know. It's never been done, not in a system as big as ours. But on this issue, we know exactly what to do because we know exactly what has worked in states with stronger gun, gun laws and overseas. And what I argue in the book is something called the New Second Amendment Compact. That I'll boil that is 10 policies, but I will boil it down to three. <laughs> the first one really takes on the gun industry and ensures that they can no longer produce military-style weapons for the civilian market. The biggest challenge there, as you can imagine, is what do you do with the military-style weapons already in circulation? There are literally millions of them. You can have voluntary buybacks, and you should, and some number of guns are going to be returned. Eric Swalwell proposes having a mandatory buyback of these kinds of firearms which is, I think, incredibly difficult to implement, even if it passes constitutional muster. Because there's going to be millions of people who aren't going to abide, and so are you going to send the military to go take, to, to run through their, you know, push through their doors and take their guns? I mean, that, that feels difficult and dangerous to accomplish. And so what I think we should do, and what I talk about here, is basically adopt the model that we have for machine guns. Machine guns are not outlawed, by the way. They're very heavily restricted. You can have a machine gun as long as it was produced before 1986, and you have a special license, and you register it, and there's all kinds of fees. I can't just give you my machine gun. You don't even want it. <laughs> We have s about 656,000 machine guns in circulation. But when was the last time you heard of anybody using a machine gun to commit a gun crime? I checked. <laughs> I went on the FBI page for gun statistics. I looked at all of the reports. They don't even have a category for machine guns. It's so rare. So we know that gun control works, regulations work. So that's bucket number one, regulate the gun industry. Bucket number two is require people who choose to own a gun to fulfill their constitutional obligation to show us that they could use that gun responsibly. They should get a license. They should register their firearm. They should get insurance. And by the way, I'm describing the system that's or a system like the one in place in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, in about uh, seven other states in America. Because what we've also recently found out is that background checks at point of purchase, the ones that 
occur in 90 seconds don't have population level impact. What, I'm, what I mean by that is they've certainly stopped people with ill intention, I didn't say dangerous people, <laughs> with ill intention from acquiring a gun, but there's simply not enough. They don't reduce gun homicides and gun suicides across the board. And there's two different theories for this. One is our system that the FBI uses to run these background checks called the NICS system is inadequate, doesn't have enough records, certainly true. But the other problem is there's simply not enough distance between when I want a gun and what I can get a gun. And what we've learned from places like Massachusetts and Connecticut that have pretty stringent gun licensing laws is that if you require somebody to go to a police station to get fingerprinted, to pass a written test, to pass a field test, to go through a much more comprehensive background check than just NICS, if you add a waiting period, then you deter people who want to use guns to kill other people, and you get folks out of the window of personal crisis when they're most likely to use a gun to kill themselves. And that's why places like Connecticut and Massachusetts have some of the lowest gun death rates in this country. You know, one of the... Uh, one of the things that I've learned as we've been doing this tour, and this is about uh, tour, tour step number 11, I think that we've done, and as I've uh, talked to people and, and, and given this presentation, is I think it's important to acknowledge the reality that with 393 million guns, with millions of gun owners, that none of this is easy, but it's also true that given that dynamic, just given how many guns we have, that most gun owners are responsible. Because if they weren't, we'd have a lot more gun deaths. And we also know from places like Massachusetts that have raised at least their state standard for getting a gun, 97% of applicants who apply for a license get a license. And that's with all kinds of safe storage requirements and everything else. So I think we have to really accept that reality, that we have millions of gun owners in this country, we have millions of guns that aren't going anywhere. I mean, we can convince people to, to sell them back, for instance, and, and that's a good thing. But I think we also have to recognize the reality that we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna snap our fingers and make all of this go away. And so we, we can do the next best thing which is raise that standard. And then the last, the last uh, bucket in my, in my three-point uh, abridged plan here is incredibly important. And it deals with investing in community-based violence intervention programs that have been running in cities across the country since about the 1990s. Because what criminologists learned when it comes to urban gun violence is that a very small group of actors are responsible for almost all of the crime. And if you map it out, you see giant hotspots across the city. Hotspots that are isolated to certain streets, to certain blocks. And so if you could get to those people who are perpetrating most of the crime, and if you could get them to change their behavior, you could significantly reduce crime. And so we've had organizations like Operation Ceasefire, Cure Violence, there's a whole host of others, that worked with violence interrupters, people from within the community, many of whom had gone to prison and then came back and wanted to help that community, who have credibility and relationships with the people who perpetrate that violence, 
and they've successfully changed their behavior and significantly reduced gun deaths all across the country. You may have read the headlines that New York, I think this was last week, announced that they had the lowest gun crime rates in 25 years since they started keeping statistics. I think over a two-week period, they had three, three gun deaths In the New York mayor's office, there's an office of community-based crime intervention. It's incredibly well-funded. It does amazing work, and it actually works. And it's a model for the rest of the nation. And so I think those kinds of programs, those kinds of city efforts, need to be scaled, need to be federally funded. So let me just close by, by saying this. I think that if we learned one thing from the 2016 election, and I certainly hope it's more than one, it's that the business of politics has really changed. You'll remember in the 80s and 90s and 70s, we would all triangulate, right, and find just the right way just the right talking points to say just the right thing, and we'd be able to actually work with people and find common ground and make progress. But that's just not the politics of today, like at all, <laughs> right? And so why are we still using a playbook on this issue that we wrote 20, 25 years ago? that's as outdated as Napster and AOL CDs with 500 free hours. I think as we gear up for the election, as you talk to your elected officials, as you talk to people who are running for office, urge them to ask for what we want and to ask for what we need. They're not and we're not gonna get this tomorrow or the next week, but we're setting out a clear goal and we're mapping out a clear strategy and eventually we'll get there. That doesn't mean don't fight for the incremental change you can get today. Fight for it because it's literally saving lives. Things like red flag laws or ERPO, I'm so sorry. Save lives, extremist protection orders. There we go. It didn't come to me, and so I said red. It was the shirts, really, the red. Those things save lives, and so we need to fight for them. We need to win them, and then we need to come back tomorrow, and we need to ask for more until we're able to build that future with fewer guns. Thank you all. Happy to take questions. We're going to take uh, questions from the audience now, so if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come to you, starting over here. Hi. I have a question about the Second Amendment and what is a militia? Did they have a Department of Army, Navy, and all that stuff when they were creating the Second Amendment? So the funny thing about the Second Amendment is that during the time of the Constitution, there was very little debate about guns. The debate about guns focused, about, focused on standing army, national standing army versus uh, these state militias. And the worry was that the federal army would uh, overshadow the state militias and would control the state militias. That was really the crux of the debate for, for the most part. And after the uh, convention, there was no interest to pursue a Bill of Rights, really. Uh, there was no interest, certainly, to include guns within it. Uh, within certain states, there was uh, some small debates about guns, but it wasn't anything significant. Uh, James Madison, who uh, wrote a lot of it, however, uh, was running for office. He wanted to win a House seat. And he needed to placate a religious minority. And so he publicly 
and I write in the book uh, how he explained it, uh, changed his position on the need for a Bill of Rights because he needed to show that he would secure uh, the right to uh, free exercise of religion. And so he drafted the uh, 10 amendments. Uh, they were, I'm sorry, there were 12 amendments, I think, initially that became 10 amendments. Um, and the language for the uh, Second Amendment uh, was borrowed from, uh, I believe, uh, maybe it was the Virginia State Convention that had some sample language, and eventually it was tweaked, and it is what we now know today. But for many, many years, it was interpreted not as an individual right to own a firearm, but as a collective duty uh, that did not necessarily apply to the individual, that it was really within this uh, context of, of a militia. Uh, that changed in, in 2008 with the Supreme Court's Heller decision, uh, where it found, for the very first time, uh, an individual constitutional right to own firearms within the home. Uh, that's the precedent now. Uh, it didn't change a lot of laws around the country, uh, and the Supreme Court has let stand, uh, did not consider a lot of different challenges that the NRA and its allies brought, up, brought on to things like licensing and registration that uh, are law in, in some of the nations, in some of the states. Um, that could change, however. The court uh, will be considering a uh, challenge to a New York law. That's a very narrow licensing law. Um, and that precedent could change, and, and the court and its court current configuration could very much find uh, new, uh, a new interpretation for that amendment. Other questions? Yes. Let's talk about banks for just a moment, not at the corporate level, but down here at the street level. Suppose I want to open a store, and I go to the lending officer in my local branch, and I say, I'd like to open a store, I need a small business loan. And he says, okay, what are you gonna do? You gonna, it's gonna be a bakery, a coffee shop? No, I'm gonna open a gun store. What happens? <laughs> what do the banks do? What do the banks do? Well, I'm sure they, they run all kinds of, uh, you know, tests on who this individual is, right? They look at probably their, their business model, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot of the banks that we have spoken to tell us that in that kind of situation, this is part of their effort to convince us uh, that uh, they are doing their part to help build a future with fewer guns. Uh, a lot of the banks uh, have an internal committee process where uh, a, uh, a client like a gun store or a gun manufacturer has to go through all kinds of sets of questions uh, and challenges to prove that they actually are a sound business. Um, and a lot of the banks have internal policies that when it's uh, a place like a gun store, uh, that it's very challenging for that kind of client to make it through all of their uh, hoops that one has to jump through, uh, because uh, like pawn shops uh, and some other, and, and, and the porn industry and some other industries that some banks have chosen not to do business with, uh, they are, uh, I think, worried about having those kinds of businesses on, on their books. Other questions? Yes. So the NRA has uh, struck upon and many supporters have supported uh, the idea that we just need to be more cognizant of the mental health issue. But I'm sure some of those NRA people realize that if we take the guns out of the mentally health challenged people, it's gonna be their guns. So how do you deal with that? Well, you know, you hear the question of mental health a lot, right? And as you point out, especially from gun rights advocates and gun extremists who say, we need to invest in mental health and it's really a mental health crisis. 
and I would say two different things. Uh, many of the people who make that argument uh, fought me in um, my, my previous effort to expand Obamacare to <laughs> Americans, right? Those are the same people who probably support repealing that law that provided parity uh, for mental uh, health care and expanded access to mental health care. But also, you know, the data on this doesn't really bear out the notion that it's mental health that's the problem. Uh, people who suffer, suffer from mental health challenges are far more likely to be victims of gun crimes than to actually perpetuate gun crimes. Uh, and then as you know, President Obama used to say, we don't have a monopoly on uh, mental health challenges. So does the rest of the world. Uh, 4%, right? Is that what you were showing me, 4%? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, other nations have uh, folks who suffer from mental health challenges. What's different here is that it's incredibly easy to, to obtain a firearm. Um, that's the difference. That's the factor that's different. And so that's why, uh, you know, I think it's something we really need to, need to focus on. We have time for just a few more questions. Uh, does NRA have any uh, international connections? And what do you do, uh, your group, do about that? Thank you. So it will surprise you to learn that the NRA spends a lot of its time trying to keep gun markets, or I should say, trying to oppose gun control laws in places like Australia, New Zealand, it promotes the weakening of gun laws in places like Brazil and Mexico. That has nothing to do with the Second Amendment or protecting gun rights here at home. Those countries don't even have a Second Amendment, although it's funny in some of the NRA literature they claim that they do. What that's about is dealing with that age-old problem. How do you sell guns to a population like America that is swimming in guns. One answer, make guns more dangerous. The second answer, open gun markets for gun manufacturers overseas. And that's what they've been doing. They send their experts, people like John Lott, to places like Mexico to argue that more guns equals less gun deaths. They you know, uh, support politicians all around the world who want to loosen gun laws with the goal uh, of helping keep those markets open. And they're very brazen about it. They don't even hide it. When uh, this administration changed regulations to make it easier for guns to be exported overseas, the NRA issued a statement praising the president and saying what wonders it would do for the bottom line of American gun manufacturers. So they're, they're pretty, pretty brazen about it. And they advise gun extremists all around the globe. You may have seen there was a, a, an investigation recently uh, of um, uh, an Australian gun group uh, that came over to Washington, D.C., to, to Fairfax, Virginia, where the NRA's headquartered, and got advice on how to push back against gun control advocates in Australia. Only there was a reporter who was undercover and filmed uh, all of those interactions. Uh, and so you could check out uh, some of the video there and how the NRA uh, uh, tries, to, tries to shape uh, those activities abroad. Question in the back. Hello. Um, how do we hold our politicians accountable who are openly hanging out with groups that are further to the right than the NRA. Um, and here in Pennsylvania, we have a group called FOAC. Um, they are f more conservative than the NRA. Uh, they went after politicians who voted on a very watered down uh, gun control bill this past uh, session that got done. And then there's also every year in the state capitol, there's a gun rally that has seemed to be coming more and more overt with its white nationalism. Uh, this couple weeks ago, we had a state representative take a selfie with a couple of like skinhead neo-Nazis who attended it. Like, how do we hold them accountable when we can't vote them out? 
I mean, I wish I had a, a great answer for you. Um, you know, one of the things that I spend a good deal of, amount of time focusing on, especially with members of Congress and elected officials who've built their entire career on being a gun extremist, is I think about who are the people around them that could serve as leverage points. Maybe it's people in the donor community. Maybe it's uh, institutions in their district. Maybe they have a college or university in their district. Maybe that college or university would issue a statement about how they are disgusted to see their uh, local elected official do such things. And you begin to create uh, Pressure, but you have to think about it in terms of, and this is kind of the theory of the banking campaign, I could have gone to the gun industry and I could have been like, guys, you gotta cut it out, right? I could have given them a petition, I could have spent years trying to get them to change their ways, but that's, yeah, that's like hitting your head against the wall, right? Because um, their entire business is built on not doing what I ask them to do. Uh, and so the way I like to think about it is what are, what are other entry points that can ultimately get the kind of change that, that we're asking for, right? So for us, we're using the banks to push, the gun in, to push change within the gun industry. And I would you know, suggest of looking at different ways of getting to, to those folks as well. And the other piece of it is, you know, um, there are, again, if there are a lot of responsible gun owners in this country who believe in responsibility, and I write about one of them in the book, his name is Sam. He went shooting out west uh, for two days. Uh, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Eight hours on the range and then classroom instruction. And he took me out and he wanted, me to show, wanted to show me what a responsible gun owner actually looks like and feels like. And as I write in the book, it was a real mixed bag. But Sam called me a couple of days ago, and he said, oh, you know, I read the book, really like the book, I agree, we agree on so much. And I said, great, because Sam is a former Marine, he's a gun enthusiast, he makes gun videos, he appears on NRA TV. I said, great, let's do something together, let's, you know, show that we can build common ground. And he said, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't be public about it. His name isn't even Sam. He asked me to change it for the book, right? So the other piece of it is activating those responsible gun owners and how you do that. That's a real open question. Question in the third row. Hi. Uh, my understanding with some of this stuff is that there's a lot of restrictions on the federal level when it comes to research. And so I, I kind of have three related questions. Like one thing I've heard is that uh, gun crime should be treated as like a public health issue and fall under the, um, you know, so the NHS can study it. And I want to know if you think that's a good idea. And even w putting aside federal funding, if a wealthy billionaire wanted to give you millions of dollars to fund research. I would say what, I, I'll take it. But <laughs> what, what, what would be the highest impact type of research that you would like done or do we not even need research? Do we know enough already on this issue? No, we definitely need research. And in the book, I have uh, a short chapter that goes through the questions I would ask if I was doing the research. Because you're right, there's a, I'm not going to find it now. Um, but there is a, uh, there's a federal ban, uh, for lack of a better word, a policy rider that's been extended every single year that prevents most kind of uh, government-funded research, that needs to be lifted. Uh, and, you know, I think it eventually will be. Um, that's, uh, I think, is number one. Number two, I think we really, really need a lot of research. We need to figure out what works, what doesn't work. We need to figure out what works where. Uh, we need to figure out um, uh, uh, lots of different things that we, you know, don't, don't have the answer to because we haven't really been able to dig into it. A lot of the research that does go on and a lot of the research that we know about in terms of, okay, licensing works or registration works comes from 
research that's funded by philanthropies uh, that is conducted by literally, I can count them on my hand, uh, the number of people who do gun research professionally in the United States. Uh, that all needs to be expanded and we should, uh, we should be coming at this from a far more informed place uh, than we are. Final question in the back. I find it uh, interesting that you said you're from Soviet Russia. Lenin killed 35 million people, uh, Mao, 65 million people. Throughout history, the 20th century, one of the bloodiest century of all time, one of the first things they always did was take away private gun, owner, gun ownership. You see the same thing going on in Venezuela. There are two articles by the BBC. Uh, the government bans personal gun ownership in Venezuela, government killing gov their own citizens. You even see videos of the mil military running over their citizens with tanks. What gives you faith that that can't happen here? Because I'm not calling for gun confiscation. Well, thank you all so much. Thank you. We're going to transition into a book signing, so uh, books are available for purchase up at the cafe. Thanks again for coming, everyone.